Today is the final message in a short series that we have been in on what is one of the shortest books in the New Testament, and that is the epistle of Philemon. One chapter, 25 verses. In fact, you can go ahead, if you have your Bible, and open it up to Philemon, which is, if you need a point of reference, it's in the New Testament, and it's, there's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. If you've gone to Hebrews, go, go left. Again, go back. The title of the series that we began a couple of weeks ago was and is Releasing and Reconciling. And uh, I, I just, I, I love this epistle because it just, it just portrays Paul's expectation that the gospel isn't just this bundle of information. It's just, not just generic news. It's not just any news. But it's the kind of news that brings and carries the transforming power of Jesus. And it, and it shapes how we see things. It shaped how Paul saw God. It shaped how Paul saw himself. And we're going to look today and find out some other things that it, it shapes as well. So if you're looking at Philemon, I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, it'll appear on the screens above. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8 through the, the remainder of the chapter. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner... Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, 
my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Title of today's message is Releasing Onesimus. Releasing Onesimus. Let's pray together. Lord, your word tells us to be still and know that you are God. Lord, not to be still that we might be entertained, not to be still that we might be enthralled with a speaker or a worship or even a meeting, but Lord, to be still that we might be enamored with the Savior of our souls. Lord, help us this morning to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On January 24th of 1890, on a Dutch liner that was leaving from the United States, one Samuel Schwemmer set sail for the Muslim world. Carrying with him a burden, a burning passion to see the gospel spread like fire among the Muslims, the sacrifices that he would eventually endure are nothing short of extraordinary. For the next 62 years, he persevered through disease, through danger, through heat, through suffering, all to serve the people that he was sent to to preach the gospel. He traveled through China, through Africa, through India, through the Mideast. In 1904, he buried two daughters in an eight-day period. Nevertheless, at the end of his life, he sat down to reflect upon his experiences And he wrote down the following words as he thought back on the sacrifices that he had made. He said, quote, The sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly would I do it all over again. Gladly would I do it all over again. You know, you can learn a lot about a Christian by how they interpret the hardships they walk through. You can learn a lot about a a believer in Jesus Christ, be they a man or a woman, by how they respond to the things they must release, by what they see in the things that God calls upon them to sacrifice. I want you to keep that thought in your mind, but just move it off to the side. And let's, for a second, leave that hanging suspended. And let's go back into the text and understand a little better, bring everybody up to speed if you weren't here over the last couple of weeks as to what's going on here in this epistle to Philemon. The year is somewhere between 61, AD 61 and AD 63, probably on the 63 side of that. The Apostle Paul is in a Roman prison. He's incarcerated for preaching the gospel. And somewhere in that period of time, this guy 
named Onesimus arrives at his prison door. Onesimus is an unbeliever. Onesimus is a runaway slave. Onesimus is a criminal because he has apparently stolen something from this man named Philemon, and he's now arrived at Paul's door. Amazingly, Paul, who's in prison, receives him. Paul preaches the gospel to him. Paul loves him, invests in him, trains him, and Onesimus then becomes a vital part of Paul's ministry operation. But Paul recognizes as he gets to know Onesimus that there's a backstory here. And it's a story that he must really understand to truly serve this man. And the better he gets to know Onesimus, the more the story surfaces of his background and of this unresolved problem, this unresolved claim that Philemon makes upon him. So there is this unfinished business that Onesimus has with Philemon. And so we we have this believer who's strategically built into this ministry, but it's one of those strange situations where for Onesimus to go forward with God, he must go back to Philemon. And so despite Paul's love for this man, despite the fact that Onesimus has become his son, he's become useful, Paul's in prison, he's an old man, Onesimus has this incredible potential, Paul releases him, and he sends him back to Philemon. Now, what I love about this book is that, yes, while the heart of it is about reconciliation, what this, this epistle is unusual in that it, it just... It offers us one slice of Paul's life, one situation, a specific situation, a well-defined circumstance where Paul is called upon to make an unusual sacrifice. It's not all over the place. It's just this one situation, and we're looking into it through a window at Paul's leadership. And part of what we're going to discover as we get to know Paul better through this epistle is the same thing that we discovered about Samuel Schwemmer as he was seeking to have to reflect back on what he went through, and that is that the gospel shapes what we see in what we sacrifice. The gospel shapes what we see in what we sacrifice. And so to understand how that emerges in the text, I want to look specifically at what Paul sacrifice. So let's look at three different things, three different sacrifices that Paul makes that emerges in the book of Philemon. First, there is the surrender of a resource. The surrender of a resource. So so God gave Paul a man. God gave Paul a resource. Now listen, I'm, I'm not trying to dehumanize Onesimus or to depersonalize him, so hang in there with, hang in there with me for just for a moment while I, I kind of recreate the context for us. Onesimus arrives, he's an unbeliever. He's, he's born again into the house of Paul. He is converted under the ministry of Paul. He's trained under the charge of Paul. He is joined in heart to Paul. Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, Philemon. Sending you my very heart. That's the way he felt about Onesimus. He's gone from being useless to useful under Paul's tutelage. In fact, the name, and this is a little play on words that takes place in verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus' name means useful. 
So Paul is basically saying, now he finally fulfills his name. Now he has become what he has been declared to be. He is Onesimus. He is useful. Now, this is a man that is set within Paul's ministry. Again, a guy who describes himself as being an old man. And not only an old man, but he says, now I am a prisoner also. So I'm an old man. I'm a prisoner. And yet he has this ministry that is thriving. The gospel's going forth. And suddenly, at Paul's doorstep, there is this young man. There's this one who is converted. It's amazing. He's a, he's a runaway slave, and yet amazing things in God are happening all around him. And he has this incredible potential for the future. He's taking on responsibility. He's able to serve Paul, able to help Paul. Paul sees a character in him in such a way that Paul's very heart is joined to this man. And it couldn't come at a better time because Paul is older. Paul is in prison. And this man is competent. He's useful. And yet none of those things prevented Paul from asking what would be a counterintuitive question, an unpopular question. Uh, None of that prevented Paul from scrutinizing whether Onesimus was called to be elsewhere. As he's getting to know Onesimus, he begins to realize, wait, there's a backstory. There's something in the past here. It, it reaches forward. It makes a claim upon Onesimus. He cannot be holy within my ministry. He is not holy mind to be used at my disposal. There is another claim upon his life. Now, in the, the narrow sense, this claim would be the the need to reconcile with Philemon, the man that he stole from. Onesimus has unfinished business with Philemon. But there's a broader sense where this applies as well. And the broad sense is where people arrive into your small group. People arrive into our local church, and they come sometimes with these prior claims with a claim that something in the past has made upon them that reaches into the future and determines where they should go from here. And sometimes that claim comes directly from God because they're supposed to go out into the field for the glory of God. And what that does, the recognition of that, is it begins to reorient us as to how we're thinking about the people that come in to the local church. Because the call that we have as a local church is not to hoard them, It's actually to do what Paul did. It is to serve them. And once serving them, it is to invite them to serve. And once that's done, we then begin to evaluate them so that for some, we recognize a claim and we send them. See, the surrender of Onesimus, in part, is the surrender of resources for the mission of Jesus Christ. And this is sobering. Because one of the most painful and one of the most joyful realities of of life in the local church is that training people can be inherently sacrificial. It's inherently sacrificial. We raise people up, that's inherently sacrificial. Because they become Onesimus sometimes. That represents sacrifice. And as a local church, we are called by God to give up the sense of claim that we might have if you're in the world of business as a a man or a woman, to give up the ROI, the return on investment, 
where we have poured into him, we've invested into him, we've spent time, we've thrown resources, we've sent him places, we've sent him to here or sent him there only to realize, wait a minute, we thought all that was going to come back into four oaks. We thought the point of all that was that we were going to receive the benefit only to have him sent out and have somebody else receive the blessing of what we have invested. Onesimus represents sacrifice. We are attached to Onesimus. He is strategic to the future of what we're giving our lives to. Onesimus forces us to ask questions that we wouldn't ask in and of ourselves. He moves the question from the consummate question that we're constantly asking, okay, what's best for me? What's in this for me? How can I benefit from this? To what is best for the church? What is best for Philemon? What is best for Onesimus? What is best for the Great Commission? And what does God want us to sacrifice here that we might get Onesimus there? Because ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's not just about our thing. You check out what Paul says in verse 18. He says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I'm willing to sacrifice, Paul says, to place Onesimus in the next place that he's called to be. It's not just about me. It's not just about my ministry. See, this is not simply about sending back a slave. There is a prior claim upon the life of this man. And the prior claim is the mission of God, the call of God on Onesimus. And by the way, we'll cover this in a little, in a few minutes, but... Onesimus goes on to lead a very large and strategic church within the Christian world. That's the path that he's heading. There's a world beyond Philemon for Onesimus, but Paul doesn't know that at this moment. Do you see what's happening here? See, Onesimus represents the best and the brightest of the next generation. He represents the the kind of of men and women that we're positioning right now, the ones that we want to see stay, the ones that we want to see Because they bless families. They they build the future of what we're doing. They build the future of the church. He represents those that join us. But may not be called to remain with us. Because God. Because the mission has made some kind of claim. Listen, Four Oaks, if we're really serious about planting campuses around Tallahassee, if we're serious about planting local churches, if we're serious about having a mission impact in this city, the exhilarating part of that is going to be that God will be faithful to bring Onesimus. God will be faithful. He will bring us men and women to make that a reality. But there's a sacrificial part of it as well. And that is that those men and women, as they arrive, will have a prior claim by God himself that they are not the property of Four Oaks, that they are set aside for the mission. And we must make a way for them to get there. Great book called Trellis Trellis and the Vine. Authors, a guy named Marshall, two guys, Marshall and Payne, said, quote, if you pour your time into people and mentor and train them, The consequence will often be that some of your best people, in whom you have invested countless hours, will leave you. They will go to the mission field. They will join a church planting team in another part of your city. 
They will take a job in a different part of the country because the gospel need is so great there. They will undertake further training, perhaps at a theological college or seminary. A commitment to the growth of the gospel will mean that we train people towards maturity, not for the benefit of our own churches or fellowships, but for the benefit of Christ's kingdom. You know what I think about when I read that quote? I think about you. I think about Four Oaks. I think about how I stand out there in that lobby and I look at our gospel partner's wall. And I think about Kate Shugart in the Philippines and the Van Strattens in in Nepal and, and the Youngs in Ireland and the different people that have been part of this local church that have been sent out because there was a vision within the elders of this church not to simply see the church but to see beyond the local church to the mission of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're a new member here and you're saying, Dave, that's all, that's all well and good. I'm encouraged by that. But I mean, really, what does this have to do with me? I'm not sure I know how this applies. Well, what I'd say is just wait until your small group gets big enough that it must multiply. And you're having that experience on a local level where the people that were a part of your group all of a sudden have to form another group. Or maybe you befriend someone that all of a sudden one day arrives at your door and says, listen, I need you to pray for me. Because I am feeling this stirring and I don't know what to do with it. And this claim is beginning to surface in his life or her life. Or wait until we plant the next campus and we have to hive off some people that are going to go and have a vision to start that thing up. That's when this kind of thing gets traction. And the challenge is, it's such a temptation to feel like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I, I don't get it because... Isn't this supposed to be that we're building our lives together? You know, and we have these different people, and they were converted in this church. They were trained in this church. They were married in this church. We wept together when they lost their child. We rejoiced together when their father, their brother got converted. And now you're saying they may be leaving? How does that make sense? See, that's the very point that's being made here. Because God says those are the moments when the gospel must shape what we see when we sacrifice. And what we see has to go beyond our thing. It has to go to the fields and it must go to the glory of God. So Paul makes a sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of a resource. Secondly, it's the sacrifice of a son. Sacrifice of a son. And I want to return us to verse 10, where Paul describes Onesimus this way. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So, So the first point kind of represented Onesimus as a leader in the church or a potential leader in the church a resource, an asset. This point kind of switches it up a little bit and, and kind of allows Onesimus to represent your son, your daughter, the kids in your family, the ones in the minivan, the ones in the family portrait. See, Onesimus represents the children 
that we must release for the mission to go forward. And Paul is surrendering Onesimus to God. Paul is surrendering his very heart, he calls him, to God. Paul says, I don't have to do this, he says in verse 13 and 14. He says to Philemon in verse 19, hey, you owe me even your own self, but I'm going to do it. Here's the most frightening aspect of this sacrifice business, the most frightening aspect of this whole mission thing, and that is that the gospel shapes how we see our own sons and daughters. The gospel shapes the claim that it might make upon them. This is all great when it's theoretical. This is all wonderful when we're reading about it or when we're reading about missionaries that are making great sacrifices, but we're we're tucked away and comfortable in our own homes or apartments. See, being a Christian parent is not a right that we have from God to build a permanent, unalterable church where family trumps all. Even mission. Family trumps everything, even mission. Where we have this future where our children are just always around us, always in town on Sunday afternoons where we all get together and have meals on the holidays too. I hope, I hope you have that. I do. I hope you have that. But I do know that the mission will never go forward if we end up coming to a place where we idolize family, where we refuse to release Onesimus. And this gets really personal when Onesimus is your own child. And we are being called upon by God to release them to the future, to release them to the mission, to release them perhaps even into their own foolishness, to release them to the field. I brought a quote with me again this morning by John Piper. I think I've read this to you before, but it's worth referencing again. He once said, quote, No local church can afford to go without the encouragement and the nourishment that will come to it by sending away her best people. And I would adapt that a bit for the purpose of this point by saying no family can afford to go without the encouragement and the nourishment that will come to it from sending away its dearest members. And believe me when I say that, even as I'm speaking here, I know that this is an incredibly difficult topic to think about. And part of the reason it is difficult is because Christian families take that responsibility of being a family so very seriously. A Christian mom and a dad are are so often very serious, appropriately, biblically serious, making serious sacrifices for their schooling. We pray for our children. We invest in them. We we seek to protect them from, from influences, from the ways, things that might take them down. We seek to train them intentionally in the ways of the Lord. And all of that is good and right and true and blessed by God. But there is a second factor as well. One that is far less popular and therefore infrequently discussed. And that is the idol that Christians make of family. 
something we are far less perceptive to because this particular idol is so highly respected. I mean, who would dare question the sanctity of the centrality of family? Only a spawn of Satan himself would dare do such a thing. This particular idol is so high-minded, so reputable. And so it just kind of gets a free pass in the evangelical world. And those that worship at that altar can even seem at times like they're more spiritual than other people because of the regard and the way they portray their family, position their family, and ultimately worship their family. I want you to ponder a statement. I want you to think about what I'm, just, what I'm about to say and just roll it over in your mind a little bit. It's kind of an, uh, an adaptation of something I heard from, from Piper once. Here's the statement. Families exist because mission does not. Families exist because mission does not. In other words, the goal of the family has never been to just turn children inward and create this thing that that is exalted above and beyond everything else. That for a good family to be a true family, for a good family to be a healthy family, there must certainly be an inward dimension where we have an identity as a family, but there must also be an upward and an outward dimension as well. It must be the blending of of the three. Because when a family turns inward, a family can turn outright dangerous. And if you're sitting here wondering how, we, how do we know when our family's turned inward too much, one thought would be that the kids are more aware of the parents' expectation than they are of the parents' approval. Our kids, and maybe, maybe your kids are adult children, Maybe your kids are teenagers, but our kids are more aware of of their parents' expectation than they are aware of their approval. I mean, let's be honest. How many adult kids do you know who are just miserable on the weekends and miserable during holidays because they, they spend so much time trying to meet the unyielding expectations of two sets of parents or maybe one set of parents with a louder voice than the other? I mean, no wonder the, the sale of booze skyrockets during the holidays. So that's one thing to think about. You know, the kids are more aware of parents' expectations than they are their, their approval. Here's the second one. And if you're a little uncomfortable by the first point, you're going to be really uncomfortable by this one. Weekends are flowing more towards family hobbies, sports events, and family trips than they are flowing towards the Word of God and the people of God, are flowing more towards family hobbies, sports events, than they're flowing towards the Word of God and the people of God. And part of the concern that we're trying to wrap our mind around is that we can unknowingly disciple our children into the idea that family events take precedent over everything else. That that is the most important thing in the world. Now, 
Now, my, my goal this morning is not to try to incite some kind of false guilt or to, or to provoke anybody to anger. My goal is to help us to cultivate discernment. Because we are alive during a great evangelical shift. There's been something enormous that has happened, and you can smell the clutch burning all the time from the gear having been shifted. Where, the, the, where, where we are deifying, you know, making like a God, deifying the place of family, and then in a corresponding way, downgrading the very place the family needs to keep it from turning inward, and I'm talking about the local church. So the family is getting bigger, the local church is being downgraded, and when the family gets bigger and doesn't have the influence of the local church, the preaching of the Word of God, the place of fellowship, and the unique ways that that influences the family, the family turns inward. You know, one of the greatest devices that the enemy has is to take a virtue, make it an idol, render it respectable so that, so that it stands there untouchable. That's what the enemy does. He takes a virtue, he elevates it and makes it an idol, renders it respectable, which makes it untouchable. And so we find ourselves in a place where we, you know, we can end up easily missing Multiple weekends for kids' games or grandkids' events or, or the next extended family celebration without considering what all is at stake and without considering what's being given up by those pursuits. You want to kill me right now, don't you? There goes Dave. He hates families. I mean, yeah, obviously, he's a Yankee. He's bringing that way that Yankee doctrine down here. Here's the key phrase. Don't miss the phrase I just gave. I said, without consideration. See, what we need to consider is that our children are watching. Our children are perceptive to the sacrifices we make. They are more perceptive to why we make these sacrifices. And so we must consider that when we cultivate a lifestyle like that, that something important is being sacrificed because we end up dispensing with the preached word, dispensing with the fellowship of the saints, and sacrificing those for events and sports and, and, and sacrificing the preached word of God, the what uniquely happens and only happens when the church gathers together as we worship together, as we confess sin together. And we dispense with this, and then we marvel that our kids have no heart for God. We marvel that our kids have no understanding of the gospel. We marvel that our own soul is growing more and more lukewarm, and we just can't figure out why, but we're not really around the people of God at all. Listen, I want to tell you as a pastor for 30 years, so I've had a chance to observe some trends. We're in a day where many Christian parents have no category for the idea of kids sacrificing events for the Word of God sacrificing a sporting event for the Word of God. And, and the benefit that can come to the child when such a sacrifice is made, when mom and dad say, oh, no, this really is more important. 
This, one is eternal, one's going to be forgotten next week. See, this is one of those ironies where, where the good becomes the enemy of the best. And, and, and in the context of this message, it, it goes to the question of can we surrender Onesimus? See, at the heart of the gospel is a loving father sacrificing a perfect son for a mission of love that secured our salvation. The right to keep a son did not prevent the father from sending the son to earth. There was no sense where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just up in heaven saying, hey, we got it good. We got this, you know, we got this relationship. We have this unity. We got this chill thing going on, and we, we enjoy one another, and we're comfortable with each other. Let's just keep it the three of us. The gospel shapes what we see in what we sacrifice. It was that way for Paul, and is that way as he evaluated what's going on with us going on with Onesimus, and so he opened his hand, and Onesimus went, and the mission marched on. Last point. The cost of Mark and Demas. The cost of Mark and Demas. Tucked away within the pages of Philemon is this fascinating subtext. Uh, it's, it's another story. It's, a, it's another kind of sacrifice. And it's seen in verse 24, actually, let's read 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. Now listen to this. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. Now you may recall from our study of Acts that Paul and Barnabas actually separated, they were together in ministry, they separated in their ministry over Mark. Apparently, Mark had rejected an opportunity to accompany Paul on an important missionary trip. Paul saw this as some kind of betrayal that revealed Mark's heart. He lost confidence in Mark, and he no longer wanted Mark to accompany him on this trip. Demas is, and this is yet to happen, so we're getting this, you know, we're seeing Demas as Paul saw him before Demas went running off to the world. So, so Demas, we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is yet to happen, deserts the Lord and goes back to the world. So you have these two men that form these two different profiles of separation, of people that had to be let go. This is not about reconciliation. This is more about release. These two guys, the first is Mark, where there is a departure over a disagreement. The second is Demas, where there is a desertion back to the world. Now, here's my point. Here's my point. Both, both of these men were part of Paul's experience of Christianity. Both of these men were part of Paul's experience of church life. And I want to suggest to you, if it is true of Paul with all of the gifts, all of the charisma, all that he had going on for him, then it's going to be true for us as well. And this is really important to recognize because there are a few things more sobering than the reality that building together doesn't mean we're always going to remain together. 
That building together doesn't somehow permanently secure a future where we're all just going to be happy without problems and no disagreements. And you know that. I mean, you know that already. You, you go to small groups sometimes, or you come here on Sunday morning, and you look around, and you see an empty chair, and what you remember about that chair is the dear friend that used to sit there. And you feel that stab of pain because it is a sad reality and part of the reality of being a Christian in a broken world because you have Mark and you have Demas and they're part of the church experience. And not only that, but when Mark and Demas leave, I mean, they look for ways to justify their departure so they are apt to criticize you They are apt to to murmur, to gossip against the small group, the pastor, the church culture, whatever it may be. And I mean, let's be honest, this this isn't confined to church. This hits you sometimes in your business, down at the firm. The, 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 the business that you're trying to get up off the ground, the team that you're trying to build, you've got Mark disagreeing, you've got Demas, the guy you brought in, the woman that you invested so much time in, they betray you and they're gone. Here's my point. Even there, the gospel shapes what we see in the way we release The gospel shapes what we see in what we sacrifice, the sacrifice of pain, the sacrifice of a betrayed investment. And the gospel speaks to us in that moment. It reminds us that that even when Mark and Demas are speaking their lies, that the gospel speaks truth. And sometimes the truth of the gospel can humble us in ways that are unexpected. Because when you have a business or you have a a, a company you work for or a school you teach at or a local church you're a part of and you've got people out there that are saying bad things about you, the reality is that people can't say anything worse than what the cross has already said about you. You know, the cross has said that your situation was so bad that you needed God to come from heaven, to clothe himself in humanity, to serve, to love, to die, to bleed, to be tortured because your sins were so bad. That's far worse than anything they're saying out there. You're actually far worse than they know. <laughs> and I am too. What they're saying may not what they're saying about you may not be accurate. But a lot of other things could be said that would be accurate. So let them work with what they have. I mean, there's a part of this where the gospel just says, hey, get over yourself. You know, because in a fallen world, there's always material to work with on broken people, on broken leaders, on fallen. There's always material. There's always sins. There's always limitations, always weaknesses. And so our approach needs to be, hey, you know, in light of our heart, it's amazing that I'm not criticized more than I am. I mean, what should really amaze us is that God brings Onesimus to people like us. What should really amaze us is that our lives have far more Onesimuses in them than they do Demas and Mark. That's what's really amazing. That's what's really astounding. And, and if you don't see it that way, First, I can relate to you because I don't always see it that way either. But what we're looking to do is we're looking to allow the gospel to shape what we see, even when people withdraw, even when people betray. And to let the gospel protect our hearts so that our hearts don't become hard toward toward those people. I mean, for Paul, 
Mark has left or will leave. Demas is on the bubble. But, but it doesn't seem to affect the way he thinks about Onesimus, the way he talks about Aristarchus or Luke or Epaphras. You know, he, he still wants to be with Philemon, verses 21 and 22. There's a sense that for Paul, he, it's like my bad experience was not going to color my experience with everybody. My experience from the past will not shape how I perceive people in the present. My experience in the past will not shape how I define the church in the future because the gospel shapes what we see in what we sacrifice. That's how it worked for Paul. And that's what delivers us to this historic twist I was talking about earlier where it is understood that Onesimus went on to play the role of the bishop of Ephesus. The bishop before Onesimus was none other than Timothy, the other spiritual son of Paul. And Paul saw that. See, Paul looked at Onesimus and didn't see a slave. He didn't see a criminal. He didn't see a useless young man. In the same way that Samuel Schwemmer looked back on a life of incredible sacrifice of 62 years of missionary work and didn't see the sacrifices, Paul saw beyond the baggage. Schwemmer saw beyond the problems and beyond the pain. They both saw the future because of the gospel. May God help us see the future because of the gospel and and move through the gospel so that the gospel shapes what we see and what we sacrifice. Let's pray.